0: I'm sure you've all seen the ads on TV. Have you seen them uh, superannuation ads about where they do this? And uh, these ads are all about the tales of two people in the same situation. And their slogan is this, compare the pair. The ads are about focusing on these two people that are in workplaces. But depending on what choice they make and where they put their money determines their final outcome. And the line in the ad is it's not too late to change. Well, today's message is a bit like this. In this section of Ruth chapter 4, I have titled this sermon, The Tale of Two Men. Two men face with a decision and depending on what they choose determines their outcome. My prayer is today that God will speak to us through his word and may his glorious name be praised. As we heard from Gavin, verse one begins by telling us that Boaz went up to the gate of Bethlehem. The gate and walls of the ancient Middle Eastern cities were usually built out of stone. The gate normally had an archway over an entrance, but it also had deep recesses in the gate on each side. In these recesses, they built seating where people could just come and sit and relax and enjoy the breeze. But these seats were also there of the place where the judges of the cities would sit and spend their days. As the judges sat at these gates, they could conduct business, guard if necessary, judge cases, and so on. On many occasions throughout the Old Testament, the gates are noted as the place of judgment, commerce, and activity. I mentioned a few weeks ago, these gates would be an equivalent of like our modern-day courtrooms. So Boaz went to the gate because the gate was the place of judgment. Boaz needed to go to the gate because this is where the matter that was discussed at the threshing floor with Ruth needed to be decided and needed to be resolved. Boaz set out first thing in the morning and got to the gate early. This was a very smart move by Boaz, because if he got there and he'd missed the man passing through the gate in the morning on his way to work, then chances are he would have to wait to the end of the day before he would see him again on his return home in the evening. So there he is, Boaz at the place of judgment, waiting and hoping for this man to show up so the case can be presented. Now, depending on your translation, we have the word just then or soon or behold, the family redeemer came by. What a coincidence. Well, I've already mentioned in this series when we looked at chapter 2 how it said, Ruth just happened to end in the field of Boaz. This isn't correct. Do you know there is no Hebrew or Greek word for things like just happened or coincidence? Why? That's because they didn't believe in it. They believed every day-to-day workings or happenings were guided and controlled by the sovereignty of God. Well, that's what the writer says here. The same is true. The closest word we have to the Hebrew is behold. The Hebrew meaning of behold points to God's sovereignty. It carries the thought of being convinced that the whole walkings are being invented by another. By adding this word here to this section, the verse shows the hand of God was active in Boaz and the whole situation because behold, God's done this. God entrusted that Boaz would be up early enough to get to the gate. Then behold, the workings were invented. God worked. God brought along the man Boaz had hoped to see. Because of the providence of God, the promise that Boaz made to Ruth in those dark hours on the threshing floor would come true. What promise? The matter will be settled today. The very fact that Boaz was sitting and approached this guy at the gate may have been a plain enough declaration that he needed to settle a judicial matter with him. But just in case this man missed it, the language that Boaz uses was a form of an official summons. The words he uses are this. Come aside, friend. Sit down here. Sounds pretty normal. But, you know, we have an issue here. The issue for us is this. We really have no true equivalent of this word friend in Hebrew in our English language. You see, the meaning is addressing a definite person without stating their name. In the Greek, they translate it as hidden one. In this statement Boaz had revealed to the man but he did not identify him at the same time he has concealed what the relation is about so by coming up and calling this man this word friend doing it this way this man now knows that this is a judicial summons that needs to be addressed other commentators have mentioned how the fact that Boaz doesn't mention his name is also an act of grace. You see, if this close relative will not fulfil the duty of the kinsman, then according to the law, he should rightfully be openly and publicly disgraced at the gate. However, throughout the meeting, his name is never given at all. By concealing his name, the shame of the situation is hidden and he will receive what he should receive. Anyway, knowing that he's been summoned for a legal matter, even though at this time he's unaware of what is about to happen or what cause Boaz is bringing before him, he shows no fear by claiming an urgent business elsewhere or putting the matter off. He doesn't seem too worried. Whatever the matter is, the Kingsman Redeemer comes to his place of judgment at the court and takes his seat. And then Boaz calls ten elders together. Do you know, this is an interesting move. Because while it is clear from Deuteronomy 25 that the elders of the city were authorised to handle the matters such as these, nowhere does it state a set number of elders are needed to resolve a matter. The law merely states, even in the most severe cases, even in the most severe matters, that two or three witnesses are all that is necessary to testify to the matter at hand. You will understand that this is continued in the New Testament when Jesus talks about that in Matthew 18, But if they will not listen, take one or two others along with you, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul repeats the same thought when working with the church at Corinth to settle matters. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Anyway, because it was only expected standard to have two or three, we're not really sure why the Bible records Boaz's action are specifically asking for 10. Because there's nothing in the law that required this action. He simply did it. But none of them said, you only need two or three of us. We're told the 10 witnesses all went, they all became a part of the presentation. In essence, they're the ones that will testify to what occurs, witnessing for or against the interesting parties, how it resolved and what will be determined. It is Boaz who called this meeting. So Boaz is the one who speaks first. Boaz must submit to him first in order to ensure the proper legal position is maintained. By speaking first, this is evident by Boaz, proper handling of the matter which is decided. The word he says literally, I will uncover your ears. It's a way of saying that there's something previously unknown to this man's ears, but Boaz is about to reveal. The metaphor conveys the idea, hey, I have something to tell you that you probably didn't know about. He then basically says, there's this widow named Naomi who went away for an extended period of time to the country of Moab. Well, she's now come back from Moab and in order to support herself, she needs to sell the land that was owned by her dead husband. I'm telling you this because her dead husband was our close brother Eliminak. So according to the law, you have the right to buy it back from her. With these words, the unnamed near kingsman knows exactly the legal matter that is now before him. The matter that is before him is found in Leviticus. It is the law of the redemption of property to a kingsman redeemer. Now some have asked, how come he only mentions the land at this point? Why didn't Boaz mention Ruth at this time? How come Instead of mentioning Ruth, he only brought the matter of the land that belonged to Naomi. Some say this is a cunning move. Is he being scandalous? Well, no, he's not. What we see here is Boaz following the law as the law was written. Remember, why is this discussion taking place at the gate in the first hand? It's happening because of their relationship with Eliminak. He is the key person here. So, Boaz is acting on the behalf of the name of Elimelech and Naomi. And when it comes to the laws regarding kingsman redeemer, there were two things that needed to be settled. As I said, the first one was the law of the redemption of property mentioned in Leviticus 25. The purpose of these laws was to protect the property of the families in Israel. God owned all the land and didn't want it exploited by rich people who could take advantage of poor people and widows. So these instructions that you read about in Leviticus were given to ensure that the property of the family remained within the family. When obeyed, these laws made sure that a dead man's property was not sold outside of the family. The second law regarding a kinsman redeemer is found in Deuteronomy 25. This is the law we've looked at before of the levirate marriage. The purpose of this was to maintain and protect a family name. When obeyed, the law made sure that a dead man's family name did not die with him. Even though these two laws are closely tied together and relate to a kingsman redeemer, the issue of the law regarding keeping the family name going through the leviterate marriage is a completely separate law regarding to the keeping of the land in the family by the law of the redemption of property. So while it's true... Ruth married Naomi's son and therefore she's entitled to come with the property. This settlement is all to do with Eliminac. He is acting on behalf of him and Naomi. The matter at hand that needs to be dealt with first is her inheritance. Does he want to honour his dead brother Eliminach by taking care of his widow by buying the land as stated in Leviticus? The issue of the family name is a separate issue altogether. This piece of land which belonged to Elimanak, must first be addressed and answered. Once the proposal of buying back the land is settled, then the second matter of the family name can be addressed. The individual laws within the law of Moses were given to ensure the proper working of society. They were there to safeguard property, family names and make sure everyone was looked after. Obedience to the law was the utmost importance. Without it, there was chaos so with every detail of the law carefully adhered to for the good of the people. That's why Ruth's name is not brought out here. It wasn't Boaz being cunning or setting a trap. It was Boaz following the law in the correct order. Following the law, Boaz offers the opportunity to step forward and redeem the land of their close brother. However, if he doesn't want to meet the demands of the law, if he's unwilling to redeem the property, I will buy it back from you, dear brother, because I am next in line. I will redeem Naomi. Sadly for Boaz, he hears the words, I will redeem it. It seems the opportunity to redeem and buy the widowed property looked too good of a deal for this near kinsman to increase his wealth in a simple way. So it seems the matter is settled. The man is a fine example of the Israelite values and integrity. He has stepped forward and done the right thing under the law. He's willing to help out Naomi by taking action to redeem the inheritance of their departed brother. Then, like one of those TV commercials, Boaz says, ah, wait, there's more. You get a free set of steak knives. As we know, Naomi had two sons, If they had lived, then they would be heirs to the land. However, as we also know, they both died. So this left Naomi as the sole owner of this land. Now, the fact that Naomi had no sons alive and the fact that she was beyond childbearing years, according to the law, the ordinary rule in this case would be the only thing in the law of redemption that was on the table that needed to be settled was the law of the redemption of property. The land would be sold to the near kingsmen and he would be free from any other burdens because of her age. However, as we know, Ruth came back with her to Moab. Ruth attached herself to Naomi, Naomi's future and Naomi's country. This action changes everything. Doing this, she now possesses all the rights of an Israelite. That means she has the rightful heiress to her dead husband's property. This is what entitlement dictate and this is what the law mandated. The law was meticulously given to cover all possibilities that could arise. This law, you read it in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy, they didn't just think, "I will do this. It is spelt out word for word and they cover all possibilities. Ruth was in a sad state because of the death of her husband. But it was such a possibility like this that the law provided for. Because of Ruth, the two issues of land and name now must come together. The right of the family land belonged to Naomi. However, the right of the family name belonged to Ruth. It was only Ruth who would be able to have and raise up a son. By doing this, the family name of her dead husband would continue. The gracious nature of the law was not intended to care for the rights of the living, but it was given to also care and to protect the name of the dead. Naomi was older and beyond the years of bearing children. So the near kingsman was not expected to marry Naomi and raise up children to continue the family name of her deceased husband. Ruth, on the other hand, was another matter. She was young enough and able to marry and bear children. So anyone who would redeem the inheritance of Naomi, a requirement of that sale would also be the need to provide the redemption and the continuance of her son's names under the prescribed law. If the near relative decided to marry Ruth in order to raise up a child in the name of a dead husband, then he would also have to give up the rights. If he did not do that, he had to give up the rights of the property as well. So Boaz looks at him and says, while it's good of you to be willing to fulfill the law, there's more. There's just a wee bit more. Let me tell you what the law also requires. It's just a small thing really. But as they say, the law is the law. So, by the way, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also require, acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow in order to maintain the dead man's name with his property. On hearing these words, once again, the whole situation changes. The first man felt the accusation and an additional property of a land, that would be a good move. But after first acquiring and accepting that offer, he then hears about the free extra steak knives that come with it being roof. The man then changes his mind, says, I cannot redeem it because I might ruin or endanger my estate. Why did the man change his mind? Or refused to marry Ruth? What was it that twigged? What did he mean when he said he may ruin or endanger his estate? Well, a few possibilities exist. Firstly, no doubt, he was a married man. Imagine that, coming home to your wife and she says, Who's that? Oh, this is my new wife. Bit awkward. He knew to bring home Ruth as wife number two would be nothing short of awkward. This would definitely endanger his estate. Or maybe the man wasn't as wealthy as Boaz, so he did not have the ability to buy the land and increase the obligation to care for a new uh, spouse spouse as well. The financial burden of taking Ruth would affect ruin um, the members of his financially from a point of view. Or probably the man already had grown sons, If he were to act of the Kingsman Redeemer here, then any child he and Ruth had together would supersede his own. So the inheritance to his own children and bloodline would be diminished. He didn't want his own already established family line to lose out on what he thought they deserved. While it's true a combination of any of these may have been in his mind, most scholars or most commentators teach that they're really not the case. The reason for his backflipped is this. Nothing within the law required him to ruin his land or his financial inheritance. The law simply required him to perform the one duty of having children with Ruth that bore the name of her dead husband. So rather than what he already had would be affected on his name and his family and endangering his state, most believe it was the fact that she was from Moab. Why he did the backflip? Most believe it was her state as a Moabite which he was concerned about. Remember, they were told, don't marry them, don't go there. Though it would be great to receive property associated with Naomi, the near kingmans knew that taking Ruth into a home and raising up her children would ruin his own reputation and his inheritance. Anyway, whatever the reason, the man refused to marry Ruth because he was concerned about that. So many comment on the irony of his comment is almost laughable. By wanting to preserve his inheritance, which included his own name, he didn't marry Ruth. What's the irony here? Well, he definitely protected his name. His name is lost in history, buried in the grave of unending oblivion. One commentary I read mentioned this. It's worth noting that this near Kingsman rejected the offer of marrying Ruth to protect his name. Well, we don't even know what his name is or whatever happened to his family. He's never heard of again, so I guess he got what he wanted. Essentially, the first Kingsman Redeemer felt that taking on another wife, which was the legal part of the situation, was an obligation that he could not or would not willing to accept. So he says to Boaz, you redeem her yourself. Finally, He hears the words that he wants to be hearing all along. He is granted the right of redemption and all that encompasses it. He is granted the right to marry Ruth as his wife. Then to seal the deal, the man takes off his shoes and gives them to Boaz. The custom of taking off the shoes probably related to the divine commandment to walk on the land and take possession of it. In years to come the ten witnesses would be able to testify to this transaction had be completed. Why? Because they saw the kingsman hand his sandals to Boaz. It symbolized that the Kingsman Redeemer surrendered his right to possess the land, but also to possess to, to dismiss Ruth. Imagine Boaz the difficult beatings of his heart over the anxiety of the moment surely turned to heavy beatings of his heart over joy and the anticipation of being excited in the heart. Boaz had prevailed. Boaz was about to become ruthless. So what? Great story. Well, as I said, I have titled this sermon, The Tale of Two Men. Two men with their chance before them to obey the law. But sadly, one said yes and one said no. In order to shrink his responsibility in obeying the law, the first men abandoned and refused to follow the minute details of the law. He was happy to say yes to um, the law of redemption of property, but he said no to the redemption of marriage. Instead of the grace found in the law, which included the Gentiles to be blessing to them, the problem of Ruth coming as part of the package deal was more than he wanted to deal with. The man was overwhelmed probably with superstition. He was worried about what people would think. He was concerned what acquiring Ruth might mean. He looked at it and he weighed it up. What if I married this woman? What would it mean? It would mean a cost, a cost he wasn't willing to give. So he said no. He disqualified himself from the right of redemption. But worse than that, did you notice his words? Unfortunately, the words out of his mouth are not good for him. What do I mean? He finished with a lie. When he uttered the words, I am not able to redeem, he wasn't truthful. The truth is he could have redeemed. He could have taken Ruth as part of the package. But he didn't. He simply refused to do so. In his lie, he pointed out the truth that obedience to the law is more than mechanical. It involves a higher law, that of love. On the other hand, Boaz took the risk of love and obedience and said yes. He followed the law to the finest detail. He is a fine example. That's the tale of two men. Two men in the same story with different outcomes and results. A man who turned away from following the law of the Lord in order to protect his own earthly inheritance and family name. And a man above all else who followed, trusted with obedience to the law and his word. Compare the pair. What a shame it is for the man saying no. Instead of being obedient to the law and becoming a great name, once he handed over his sandals, unlike those super, unlike those superannuation ads, For him, it was too late. He enters the pages of redemption history and he fades from them just as fast. We never hear from or about this man ever again. Never is he mentioned again. He fades into the unknown significance of history. But there is no such shame associated with Boaz. This man of obedience has his name written down in scripture and has been held in a place of honour for many, many years, the tale of two men. Now, some have said the purpose of today's message is this. Compare the pair. Have a look at these two men and ask yourselves this question. Are you more like Boaz or are you more like the man? Are you someone that says yes to God and follows his ways or are you someone like the other man who says no? We're told the point of this is go out there and live like Boaz. Be the kind of people that says yes to God. Be the kind of people that says, yes, I'm going to follow your laws and do it every day. Remember, Boaz got up early. He was prepared. And people say, that's the message here. Be like Boaz. Get up every day early, ready to obey and follow the laws of God. Well, if I was to ask you, in life, are you more like Boaz or the young man? well, let me tell you this. We are more like the unnamed man. We don't follow the law. As much as you'd like to believe you do, you don't. You saw the children's talk I did this morning. I did exactly the same talk at Mill Valley Ranch this week. I asked the kids, put up your hands. Have you ever lied? Mill Valley, they all went up, not here. Ever stolen, ever swore, and all of them put up their hands. What if I was to do it now? What if I was to ask you as adults, put up your hand if you've ever lied, sworn, stole. Would your hand go up? No doubt it would. And if it did, let me tell you, you're doomed. You blew it. You're no Boaz. You're stuffed. You're gone. You're like the other lying, escaping man who said no to God and didn't follow the law. Because if you've done any of those things, you're cactus. Like him, you deserve to have your name removed from God's book of life and never be heard of again. So if I was to say to you, the point of today's sermon is this. Look at these two men, compare the pair, and as you walk out those doors, be like Boaz, follow the law, I'm setting you up to fail. You see, the truth is this. It's not that you don't follow the laws of God. The truths are you can't. It doesn't matter how much you try. It doesn't matter how early you get up before the sun comes up. If you get up and you say, today I'm going to follow the laws of God wholeheartedly, how long before you fail? For me, it'd be before breakfast. And it's not that I don't want to. I can't. Now the good news. Every word and every detail given in this book of Ruth and the whole Bible is to show us a greater story of love, redemption, and restoration. God has taken these real people with their truly human needs and desires, and He uses them as an example of His redemption for the people of the world. Every person mentioned here is symbolic of another figure or principle which leads to the work of Jesus Christ, and it's truly a work of beauty. Today, is the tale of two men, is no exception. Two men in today's parable story, one man said yes to God, one man said no. Do you know we find Paul talking about the exact same thing in Romans 5. He says, compare the pair. Let me read to you from Romans 5, from the message. Here is the Gospel in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong and got us all into trouble with sin and death, another person did it right and got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many people in the right. All that the passing laws against sin would do would be produce more lawbreakers. Why? Because you can't do it. But sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with this aggressive forgiveness we all call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. All sin can do is threaten you with death and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, a world without end. That is the tale of two men. You can't go out and live by the law, but someone has done it for you. I want to be a dentist today and I'm going to finish with I found this poem. It is this. In the requirements of the law, there is no hope because the law reflects the standard of God. We know no man who can meet its demands. It is beyond all our ability, so we dare not trod. But God, but for God, all things are possible. He stepped out of heaven's glory and united with human flesh in order to show the good news found in the gospel story. Yes, Christ took on the likeness of man and in the appearance of the cross, he went. Being obedient to the law to fulfil the plan from heaven to earth on this mission, he was sent. He alone can redeem man who fall so long ago. In his grace and mercy, he came to dwell among us fulfilling the plan when the cross He did go and how the Lamb of God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know my Redeemer lives and I know my hope in Him is found. I trust the surety that His redemption gives. No other place refuge can be found. In Christ alone, I will hope and trust. To Him alone, I will set my gaze. It is the Lord. Jesus, who is faithful and just, he is my sure hope now and for all days. The tale of two men. One man said no, one man said yes. All I can say is hallelujah and amen.